This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, I talk with a former National Security Council director on Russia's military capability, what the U.S. can learn about their strategy, and how long Russia can sustain its attack on Ukraine. Then, where do China-Russia relations stand now? President Biden spoke with China's leader in a two-hour video call, warning of, quote, consequences if China supports Russia's war with Ukraine. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Russian military has not made the progress they and analysts had expected in the war against Ukraine. Estimates of Russian troops killed range anywhere from 3,000 to 14,000. And there are reports of Russian soldiers running out of fuel and food. Jeffrey Edmonds is a research scientist at CNA and is the former director for Russia on the National Security Council. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. U.S. intelligence is estimating the number of Russian soldiers killed at 7,000. Assuming that's true, why would the number of casualties be so high? I think much of it has to do with the very poor operational planning or lack thereof that went into this. I mean, it really seems as though the Russians thought they could just drive to Kyiv and would be able to just take over the city and the rest of the resistance was, would fall. And what we saw was a very stiff Ukrainian resistance with very advanced weapons that I think the Russian military just wasn't prepared for. And so I think because of that, they didn't take necessary security measures. They just didn't approach this as, as a military would normally approach a complex mission. And that's why so many had gotten killed. Uh, so British intelligence reports that Russian troops are running out of fuel and food. First, how could that possibly be happening? And what impact do you think that will ultimately have? So I think it has a huge impact. I think that's one of the reasons you're not seeing them push more, you know, the resistance plus the logistical issues. I think a lot of this, again, goes back to the lack of planning, one. And then two, this isn't necessarily the kind of mission the Russian military normally uh, trains for. It usually trains for a war against NATO and the United States. And that's a very different different kind of, of thing, rather than this, this push along, you know, on, on land, on ground, um, into another country where it just it just that doesn't have the logistical capability or planning to really service what the, what the uh, Russian troops need. So Russia claims to have launched two hypersonic missiles against Ukrainian targets. What does that tell you about their strategy and how this war is going for them? So there are a couple, there are a couple aspects about the, the hypersonics. Um, one, if it was an underground depot, then it maybe makes some military sense to use the hypersonic because it, it comes down from the top, it's very fast. Uh, it's got tremendous kinetic um, force behind it, and so maybe that's what you need. But I also think that this is more about Russia trying to capture more of the narrative. Obviously, as you said, things have been going so poorly for the Russians. That's certainly making it back home. And so I, I think there's also a domestic signaling aspect of this. Like, you know, we're, we're using our cool, high-tech stuff, but also there might be some intimidation um, directed towards the Ukrainians on this as well. And I believe that this would be the first time a hypersonic weapon would be used in combat. Defense Secretary Austin had said that Putin, if he in fact did use hypersonic missiles, is trying to, quote, reestablish momentum. Do you agree with that? Yes, I, I think that's, that's, that's one way to look at this, in the sense that Putin clearly knows 
that the Russian military has not achieved what he, regardless of what people around him are saying about it being on track, he knows that they're not on track. And so I think he wants to kind of take, again, take over that narrative or build more momentum into his troops um, to really try to get them to, to move forward and, and to actually achieve some of the, the military objectives they've set before themselves. So what strategic purpose, Jeff, is it, does it serve Russia to target civilians? I mean, maternity hospitals, schools, the theater with children sheltering inside. And, and does that level of brutality surprise you? So in one sense, it doesn't. Um, from Putin's perspective, I think that if he can't take the cities peacefully, he's more than happy to level them, unfortunately. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that there's probably a mix of Russians trying to target things that are actually of value to them and then missing, um, because a lot of the weapon systems they're using aren't, aren't super precise. But there is also the part, if they if they feel a hospital is being used by both as a hospital, but also as a place to, you know, service Ukrainian resistance or Ukrainian troops, that they won't hesitate to strike that at all. And we saw that in Aleppo and um, Syria. They just have very little concern about collateral damage in general. And I guess the big question then is how far is Putin willing to go in Ukraine? You know, does it serve his goals to completely destroy Ukraine's cities and infrastructure? So I think that's, I mean, that's the key here, right? I think we're starting to transition into a much more brutal part of this war where he is going to have this kind of siege mentality because he, he can't achieve his his political goals there. I mean, I, there, there isn't really an end state here where I think he wins unless the Ukrainians uh, capitulate. But he can't put in a puppet government like he originally wanted to because he would have to stay there. They wouldn't last last a day if, if the Russian military pulled out. So, I, you know, to your to your question, I think, unfortunately, he is willing to lay waste to Ukrainian cities until Ukraine capitulates. And how does this, I mean, how does Russia define success here? So I think that's moving. I think that's a moving target. I think originally the plan was, again, to drive into Kyiv, set up a puppet government. Ukrainians would be grateful. They could all go home. That clearly was far from, from reality. And so I think now they might, he might settle for something less, but it would still be the recognition of Donbass, the recognition of Crimea, Ukrainian neutrality, Ukrainian demilitarization, which I think at this point, given the, the morale and, and the popularity of Zelensky, I just don't think that's a realist. I don't think those are realistic political objectives for, for Putin at this point either. Well, you mentioned morale. How's the morale of uh, Russian troops, given the number of casualties, this, you know, running out of food and fuel? Um, how, do we know how they're doing? I, I, there are a lot of indicators that, it's, that it is low. And it, I don't think that's surprising because most of these troops were training in Belarus or other places and didn't realize they were going into combat against the Ukrainians. I mean, like for those of us that went to Iraq and Afghanistan, we knew we were going to Iraq and Afghanistan. So we were able to mentally prepare for what that means. Um, Russian soldiers were given that, that that ability. And so when you, when you, it's one thing to have ones and twos lead, but when you see a whole set of, you know, four tanks lined up fully fueled and functional with no crew, that's, that's concerning from the Russian perspective. Okay, Jeff, we'll take a quick pause right here and then we'll come back and continue. Coming next, Russia's military capability and strategy. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how long can Russia sustain this war? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. I'm here with Jeffrey Edmonds. He is a research scientist at CNA and the former director for Russia on the National Security Council. Jeff, you've said that you don't think Russia wants to attack a NATO country directly, but give me a scenario where there could be unintended spillover. So I think the further the Russian military gets to the West, 
um, towards Poland, the more it becomes, the leadership becomes frustrated with the amount of weapons that NATO and other allies are, are providing the Ukrainians. There's a chance that I think the Russians might try to just strike targets that they believe were convoys or bases where you could have those weapons. And that would actually be intended escalation um, on the Russian side. And I, I wouldn't put that by, by Putin either. If he feels that he really can't make gains here, and a lot of that's because of the weapons we're providing, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all he, if he plays a very risky game trying to, to interdict these weapons as they come across the, the border. So what circumstances, if any, would Putin use a chemical or a biological weapon? So I think, unfortunately, the, the way the Russians would, would use um, chemical weapons um, would be to clear, you know, it's it's actually militarily, it's, this is a horrible, horrible thing. It's fairly effective at clearing city blocks when you think about it, um, rather than pushing uh, Russian troops in there. There is a scenario where he, you know, if he has a, if there's a stronghold or a, a difficult urban area, you could use chemical weapons there and not risk any of your own soldiers. But it's really a, kind of a horrific, horrific thought. And what do you think the U.S. response should be if that does happen? I, th I think if that happens, I mean, it, one, it just further alienates the, the Russian leadership and, and really, you know, condemns this, this, this war altogether, although they'll obviously play it up as, as a narrative. But I think we still need to maintain what we're doing, um, you know, increase economic sanctions, increase the amount of weapons that we're sending across the uh, border. So what lessons should the Pentagon take from watching how Russia has carried out this war as a potential future adversary? So it's a complex question, and we a lot of us military analysts are kind of struggling with that right now. It obviously hasn't performed as well as it as it would have. Like I said, this is not normally the kind of war it has prepared for, and so it's it's difficult to say that the Russian military would perform as poorly as it has in Ukraine if it were fighting NATO. That being said, it clearly hasn't performed as well as as many of us thought it would, and so I think we just need to you know we need to to take note and, and look at the weakness weaknesses, and then you know build our own capabilities and training and operational plans accordingly. So what effect uh, will economic sanctions have on Russian military capability in the short term and then also in the long term? So I think in the short term, I mean, Russia already had somewhat of a, of a you know, limited amount of these mo of modern weapons and ammunition has been an issue because many of a lot of the ammunition stockpiles are from the Soviet era. So they have near term problems with logistics. And in the mid to long term, you're going to see them unable to complete a lot of their modernization programs or to field new equipment. And so I think that, you know, this sets the Russian military back at least 10 years um, in, in my mind. So does this really impact how um, formidable uh, adversary Russia is to the United States? I think at the conventional level, I think we do need to maybe bring down our, our estimation of their capabilities a bit. I mean, it's hard to tell in peacetime when, you know, people like me spend hours watching strategic exercises and try to understand how good the Russian military is. Well, we're seeing a lot of real shortcomings there. And so I think that's something we need to take on board. That being said, Russia still has a lot of capabilities in its Navy and its Air Force, its nuclear forces, that it's not using this conflict. So it's it's this conflict is, is very much about the close air support and about the ground troops. There are bigger, bigger parts of the Russian military, and you know, we need to take all of those capabilities into account as well. And I guess the question is, you know, how long can Russia really sustain this war? What do you think? So I think it's hard to say. I think in the coming weeks, you're going to have a, if you don't have it now, you're going to have a big operational pause because I think the, the troops are fairly exhausted. Um, they, ha they haven't solved the logistics issues. They haven't really rotated in a lot of new troops. And so I think you're going to have them dig in and reconsolidate the positions they have. That they're not going to be able to take Kiev, and I don't think they will, they'll be able to take Kharkiv. And so I think you're going to see them try to reassess, regroup, um, and at least get some 
you know, rest or, you know, relieve the exhaustion in some way, shape or form. Um, because it, it appears to me that they've really kind of reached a, a, an end point as far as what they can do. They're making small progress, but it, it's pretty clear that, that the Russian troops are pretty, pretty exhausted. You know, the other side of that question, Jeff, is how long can the Ukrainian military sustain their resistance before having to make concessions for peace? So I will say from the from the outside looking in, it's very hard for us to gauge where the Ukrainian military is. What we can infer is that they are still a very viable resistance because the Russians aren't able to, to push into the cities. What we don't know and don't have a good feel for, honestly, is, is how long they're able to do that. But the one thing they have on their side is they do have morale. They might be exhausted, but they have they have purpose, right? Which is so important for individual soldiers. These guys are defending, these men and women are defending their their homeland and so there's a there's a moral sense to this that i think helps carry them carry them through and is there anything else jeff that the united states can offer the ukrainians by way of military assistance that we haven't already so i think we're looking at more advanced air defense uh systems and i think that's that's a really good way to go the, i mean the javelin the anti-tank weapons we're giving them are some of the most advanced out there so it's hard to go above that but i think we might be able to help more with air defense it's already the, the lower altitudes are already very hard for the Russians to operate in. We might be able to give them some stuff that would target higher altitude um, aircraft and that just increasing the amount of pain that, that the, the Russians are feeling as, as they do this. All right, Jeff, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Still ahead on Government Matters, will China offer Russia a lifeline? We look at China's relationship and influence with Russia. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. President Biden spoke to Chinese President Xi for nearly two hours by video conference. The purpose of the call was to ensure that China doesn't offer Putin a lifeline and allow him to continue the attack on Ukraine. Ling Ling Wei is the chief China correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Ling Ling, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So the White House said that during the call, President Biden warned President Xi that there would be consequences if China offered material support to aid Russia's war effort. How did China react to that? Sure. Uh, shortly after the call concluded, uh, Chinese uh, uh, state media immediately released a statement uh, laying out China's position on the Ukraine issue, which is uh, basically can summed up as, uh, you know, China still doesn't oppose Russia. At the same time, China supports Ukraine. The seemingly contradictory uh, purposes uh, really shows that uh, you know China's strategic focus on sticking to Russia, uh, uh, maintaining this kind of alignment with Russia, still very much there. Um, and also, it shows that um, the stance on supporting Ukraine that shows that China, if they ever had intention to send military equipment to Russia. And now after this call, they would really think hard and think very hard about it and very careful about it. Uh, our understanding based on our conversations with uh, Chinese officials and foreign ex uh, policy experts that they will refrain from sending military weapon and military equipment to Russia. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out is that it's very interesting also uh, in terms of Chinese response. They highlighted this call as the need from Washington to uh, talk to China 
about potentially solving this crisis. So basically, uh, you know, the call was viewed quite positively in Beijing because it shows that the U.S. needs China here. So how does China view Russia's war on Ukraine? I mean, because I know that they value stability and, you know, status quo, and this has definitely changed things. So uh, at this point, definitely, um, they are, uh, their uh, position on Russia's invasion of Ukraine remains very ambiguous, to say the best. Um, so what really, uh, I think, especially at the beginning, based on our conversations with people in the know in China, uh, the Chinese leadership was somewhat surprised by the, um, you know, very audacious uh, assault uh, launched by Pre President Putin on Ukraine. So they kind of were uh, caught off guard somewhat, didn't really know how to respond. But in the past week or so, their strategy had become more clear, which is, you know, in any case, China is not going to abandon Russia as a partner because they really view this crisis through the lens of U.S.-China competition because China, in China's view, China needs Russia as a partner to confront the United States. So, Ling Ling, how far is China willing to go to pressure Putin and how much influence do they really have? That's a great question because it's you know obvious, right? If you really want this war to end, Xi Jinping should just pick up the call and tell Putin to back down, back off. Uh, however, it's it's a really big question exactly how big of influence or leverage uh, Xi Jinping has over Putin, um, and um, so this partnership, you know, both sides declared on February fourth is one with no limits, but actually it's showing its limits in real time. I think, you know, we're going to see more pressure from uh, the international world on China to be more proactively condemn Russia for its action. Um, but in terms of exactly how much they can help solve this crisis is still, you know, yet to be seen. And China has not yet condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine, at least not publicly. I wonder if China's complying with U.S. financial sanctions against Russia. So far, they have been, because um, Chinese banks and Chinese companies still very much need to access the dollar-denominated global trading system in order to do transactions. So, um, you know, even very early on during the invasion, when I talked to uh, my banking sources in China, uh, they basically told me our default position is comply, unless told otherwise. And that um, uh, situation, that, you know, uh, stance remains. Um, and also, on the other hand, I would say China will try to maintain what they consider normal economic and trade ties with Russia. For example, they have signed, you know, very big oil and gas purchase agreements with Russia. And I do think that will continue. On one hand, um, you know, it's, it's, so, it's kind of a form of support for an important partner. On the other hand, China also needs secure its energy supplies. 
You know, is, is President Biden had discussed concerns that the Chinese government was spreading disinformation, um, repeating Russian claims that um, the U.S. is supporting biological weapons research uh, in Ukraine. What can you tell us about that? That just shows that uh, the kind of uh, U.S. fashion uh, will continue to dominate uh, Chinese media's coverage of this war. Um, you know, they have tried to tone down uh, the kind of uh, rhetoric that overly pro-Russian forces uh, try to sort of like strike balance between pro-Russia and pro-Ukraine. However, what hasn't changed is the kind of uh, rhetoric criticizing the U.S. and NATO for instigating this invasion. Uh, that just shows that for the Chinese leadership, the United States remains the biggest problem, the biggest strategic comp competitor. What does Russia want from China? And, and what do we know about any discussions that could have happened between Russians and Chinese? Uh, that's really a good question, sort of like in line with the one you asked earlier. Um, so exactly how much Putin is expecting to get from Xi Jinping in terms of uh, you know help uh, uh, that that's that's really um, you know not super clear but for one thing he definitely wants to uh, continue the kind of uh, economic and, and trade relationship. Um, if he, I, I don't know, uh, you know, there are definitely intelligence, U.S. intelligence showing that Russia had asked for military supplies from China, help them, you know, uh, carry, continue to carry out this war. Uh, but question is, will China do it? Based on the indications so far, um, they probably won't uh, provide the kind of lethal weapon uh, to help, uh, you know, uh, Russia so blatantly uh, carry out this war. Think about it. If you see made in China bullets on the streets of, on the streets of Ukraine, you wouldn't have any deniability whatsoever. All right. Well, Ling Ling, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, 
include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.